0: Hey, design thinkers welcome to another episode of the show i am your host simon hong and i am very excited to share an inspiring conversation with costa Laudicos, covering ux design sharing his experience and expertise so without further ado let's go Costa believes passionately in the power of UX design to deliver business success and customer satisfaction. With 12 plus years in the industry, prior to this, it is his background years of character animation, digital design strategy and working within advertising agencies which inspire his convergence interests into UX. He moved to the UK in 2006 and focused on his first London role as a producer for a recruitment advertising company, developing online strategies and the management of delivery of projects through all stages of the development cycle. This gave him a strong foundation in the end-to-end digital strategy and the ability to spot an opportunity in his next role within healthcare PR agency to introduce a UX function. Costa has since then had the privilege to bring UX strategy and thinking in many industries including advertising, PR, startups, high street retail and now higher education. During those journeys, Costa has been fortunate enough to work with such a diverse and talented group of people that have helped him improve to get to where he is today. He also believes in returning the support and guidance and a keen mentor to individuals and the UX community. Hey Costa, welcome to the show mate.
1: Hey man, thanks for having me. <laughs> How are you doing? Yeah, not too bad, not too bad. Excited,
0: very <laughs> excited. Nice. So, Costa used to work with me at Costa Coffee and he was one of the first designers to join and build UX Foundation within the company. He decided to move back to Australia, where he is originally from. And because after all, who doesn't like the sunshine, right? So, Costa, tell us about your new life.
1: Oh, well, uh, <laughs> uh, it's weird. I've been – I was in the UK for 15 years, so I moved when I was in my mid-20s. That's how old I am right now. Um, but I feel like because I'm most of my adult life so, was spent over in London, I'm trying to get back into the swing of things in Australia, but I feel like, you know, I, I've like lost that sense of Australianness. Like I, I complain about the heat. How do I survive with the mosquitoes? Uh, I've been in this new house now for about a month and we've already seen two snakes. So oh. it's kind of like, like, what the hell did I, why did I leave, basically? Why did I leave London for? Because it was so much easier. Um, you know, like, you know, the pandemic hit and, you know, you miss family. I've got two young children as well. So I think it was it was the right time to move home basically but yeah just trying to get back into the swing of things it's been a, it's been quite a ride definitely
0: yeah such a bold move as well just talking about the snakes like in the house do you see them or
1: no 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 just outside like we, we we live near a river so like because it's like in the height of summer it's snake season and to be honest like i haven't seen them my dad's seen them so my, okay. ba- my dad's been over a couple of times maybe it's just his old age and his like <laughs> His vision impairment, I don't know, but, like, he says to seen two snakes. Um, yeah. I, I have to just go, yep, okay, because we are, don't get me wrong, like, you know, my in-laws live pretty close by and, like, they see snakes all the time. So I'm just trying to, like, prepare myself and prepare my children as well for when they see a snake. Just, like, you know, keep your eyes on it, back away slowly, they react to movement, and then when you're far enough away, turn, run to your nearest adult. And then we'll call snake catcher, basically. So we've already had a snake catcher come out to try yeah. and find them.
0: Wow. It's definitely a lot to think about there. Hopefully, they're yeah. not poisonous.
1: Uh, one was uh, an eastern brown, which is apparently the second most deadly in Australia. Yeah. So, mm. But again, my dad's seen it, so who knows what colour it was.
0: If you wanted to sunbathe in a garden, for example, like you can't really do that, right?
1: No. We've got a pool as well, and so... Like when, when the snake catcher came over, mm-hmm. he was talking about how like these white crown snakes, which I've never heard of, pentacles, like live in the filter as well, and like they're they're not poisonous, but still, you don't want to like lift the filter up, put your hand in, and then there's a snake there. <laughs> so, like, like we've got a pool, we've got a pool guy coming over like once a month just to do like general maintenance for the pool, which is. It feels weird having a pool. Like just the upkeep is just ridiculous um, of wow. having one. But, uh, yeah, I'm very more mindful these days. And I was mowing the grass the other day, and I was wearing, like, really thick wellies just yeah. to make sure nothing jumped out at me and caught me by surprise. I think I'm over-embellishing, like, <laughs> how bad the snake problem is here. But, like, having lived in London for 15 years and coming back home you know, you don't see any critters over in London. Like spiders are tiny. There's no mosquitoes. There's no flies. There's no bugs. And I come back here and it's just like I'm getting bitten by mosquitoes, getting ravaged by mozzies. Oh, it's the worst. makes sure about – flies are everywhere. Um, I'm just trying to get get used to this life again.
0: Yeah. Good luck, mate. Thank <laughs> you. <laughs> How did you get started in US?
1: Well, so, you know, there was only one subject when I, uh, on UX when I did uni, and this was a long time ago. So I didn't really have any sort of formal training apart from the digital design aspect of my, um, I guess, my my course, my degree. But um, I moved to the UK to pursue animation because that was my background, basically. But, you know, fresh off the boat, even I knew when I was offered a role, that's 16K a year, wasn't really going to allow me to survive in london so i kind of went back into finance which is what i was doing when i was in university as well so i was i was studying it was called a bachelor of multimedia where you did different parts of digital uh so sound engineering digital design animation stuff like that um and the idea was i go back to finance try and make the money that i could that way i could take the hidden animation um but like i just I just needed to get out of finance basically. So I didn't think I could last that long. So I kind of moved back into a digital space um, and basically did stuff that, that, that I did in my degree basically and worked my way from there. So I began as the digital producer, which is kind of like a hybrid role uh, of providing digital strategy for clients and kind of overseeing the work like a project manager. And there were elements of UX design in there, but it was mostly wireframing basically and consulting on best practices, but I wasn't really enjoying the project management aspect of that role. So I left, moved into a healthcare PR agency, and I saw a gap where I could define the role itself. Mm -hmm. So I introduced UX into that workplace, starting small and building skill sets in myself and my team before I needed to go because I needed to branch out to really make a go of it. So I became a contractor and was able to introduce it to the workplaces that I was working at while still learning my trade, but on a grander scale, basically. So how I did that was I was reaching out to other UX designers. I was reading lots of case studies, books, spoke to numerous workmates in different fields, went to lots of conferences, watched a lot of interviews with designers, people like Jess uh, Gothelf and Laura Klein and the like. And I kind of threw myself into the deep end. But I was very fortunate enough to work with like some really amazing people that allowed me to help me grow the function and strategy in those workplaces, which has kind of got me where I am today.
0: That's really cool. I mean, you're a self-starter and following your passion, which is awesome. Do you remember the experience of moving to the UK at first?
1: Yeah, um, I was mid-20s and... The idea was that I'd go over to go see the World Cup in Germany um, and I was going to work there for a year, basically, and then come back with tons of money because that's what you do in London. You go over, you you work for a year, you come back a millionaire, basically. Absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> but, you know, it doesn't really pan out that way. So I, I I went over there, went to the World Cup. I was doing a bunch of different jobs just to make ends meet basically (laughs) um and kind of fell in love with the place I didn't want to leave I I wasn't there's nothing for me well apart from family there's nothing for me to really come back to in in Australia like you know my friends and family were all here in Australia but like I was enjoying life over there um it was a new experience um and I, I, I didn't want to leave it and I'd always thought that you know, maybe next year I'll go back, or the year after, the year after that, and like 15 years basically. Uh, <laughs> I was then you yeah. uh, finally decided to come back last year. Yeah! Wow! What a journey that is.
0: What was your role in finance then? That's quite interesting.
1: Oh, it was credit. It was it was the dullest job on the planet. It <laughs> really was. Um, when I was when I was out of school. I didn't know what to do with myself work-wise. I tried my hand at development, so like learning Java and C plus plus and Visual Basic and stuff like that. And I hated it; I was terrible at it, couldn't do it. So I I was in that sort of limbo where I didn't know what to do. My mum got me a job with her, basically um, working in an advertising agency doing like credit control and credit analysis um and reporting and it was something that that just you know it was a paycheck basically um but yeah I I didn't enjoy my role at all whatsoever (laughs) I was keen to leave it um it took me a while to leave but you know I'm glad I left it in the end because I'm doing something that I'm really passionate about I really enjoy doing
0: yeah, that's amazing. It's really um, inspiring just to show that you know, like how your journey has become from from working in finance to where you are now in UX design. So, what do you do outside of UX design?
1: Mostly, like I've got two young children, so two young boys, age four and six. And you know, to be honest, it's just chasing after them. Really, like <laughs> they're just like energy energizer batteries like they're non-stop they they love playing lego i love playing lego which is great so you know we've got something in common but like you know at the end of the day like there's lego everywhere you're trying to like not to impale your foot with sharp bits when you walk around the house (laughs) yeah um they are getting into a lot more sport now which is great i still try and play a lot of football and cricket when i can uh whenever the body allows me basically um, but they don't like watching football or cricket. And it's really hard to brainwash your child to support Liverpool when they love playing it, but they don't love watching it. So mm-hmm. I don't think it actually helps that, um, you know, I'm going to wake up at 3 a.m. every morning now, basically, if I want to watch football uh, in Australia. So, um, you know, living in London, I kind of save it. In, you know, don't tell my wife this, but I kind of save it when she would go out uh, on a Wednesday or Thursday night with friends because I could just watch the Champions League at a normal, normal hour. You know, I'm going to wake up at 4 o'clock to watch any sort of football these days. Um, and I I guess I also, when I do have the time, I, I love playing music and the boys are getting to oh, that yeah. age where they want to learn how to play the guitar. So we've do been doing a bit of that recently. Um, you know, hopefully they'll join the band soon and we can... Uh, we can rule the world. We can tour the world together.
0: What would the band be called?
1: Oh, look, I, I, I had a midlife crisis with my mate Jesse, uh, and we called ourselves nothing but Sim. And the <laughs> only public appearance that we've made is with that, at my wedding, basically. That's so, a cool name. We're, mate, we're dreadful. We're dreadful, but uh, it, you know it's a bit of fun.
0: Yeah, yeah, talking about music, uh, you played guitar, right? I remember when you did the um, the quiz during our digital design meeting where you played like, yeah. snippets of songs and we had to guess the name. That was so cool.
1: Uh, I couldn't tell this story, but um, I don't think you were on this meeting. You those, those Wednesday meetings, those staff meetings where, you know, we'd constantly talk about nothing but what everyone's watching on Netflix, basically. Right. And so I kind of took that as my sort of, like, well, look, if we're not t- discussing work and, you know, to any prospective employers, I'm not like this usually, but, like, you know, they were so, like, ingrained and, were like, oh, I watched this on Netflix. I'm exactly. watching this on BBC. So I'd kind of, like, mute myself and just, like, learn. And, and I'd, I'd play a bit of guitar, but there was one time where I forgot to mute myself. <laughs> I was playing in the background. I was caught out by uh the chief digital officer which wasn't great uh (laughs) uh, (laughs) yeah i do i do i do like to dabble every once in a while
0: i wish i was there to witness that (laughs) (laughs) how's the family coping with the new surroundings then so is anyone homesick yet
1: um it's been an adjustment period with everyone like my kids are getting used to it now like it helps that you know, we bought a house at the pool. So, we're in the pool every day, basically. So, that's helped. Like, originally,
0: awesome. when
1: we first moved over, you know, we, we were struggling to find a house and we had to live with the in laws for a bit, which was great. But, you know, it's hard to adjust when, you know, we sold our house back in June. We've been in temporary accommodation up until the end of December. So, what's that? Five, five months in temporary accommodation. It kind of wreaks havoc with routine. So, like, it's, it's been a bit of adjustment period, but, like, we're slowly getting into life here. So, mm-hmm. you know, boys, you know, my oldest is started school. The youngest is in a nursery that he quite likes. So we're getting more of a routine. Like, you know, they, they miss parts of London. They miss some of their friends and, you know, obviously a bit of a different lifestyle there. But, you know, they're coming on board with an Australian way of life. Like, you know, it's always sunshine here. Um So they're always in the garden playing. It's always, you know, not miserable, rainy, but like, you know, winters are cold and, you know, you don't really tend to go out in the cold or in the rain in the UK. So, yeah, they're getting used to it now.
0: Nice. What a lifestyle that is. Just completely changed from one extreme to another.
1: It's just Yeah, it's a bit different, isn't it?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Whereas I'm in the freezing cold in Manchester right now. (laughs) Yeah. What are some of your favorite examples of good UX at the moment?
1: Uh, I think my favorite is the design thinking methodology that influenced the safe landing of Apollo 13's lunar module. So I just want to okay. put in a space nerd alert to anyone listening here. But mm-hmm. um, you, know, you look at design thinking as a means of improving products you know, by understanding how... Now, we as users interact with products in real-world circumstances. And the story about this is uh, the NASA flight director, Gene Kratz, had planned for emergencies for a number of years. So he had exact replicas of spacecraft simulators, materials and all, built for any sort of unexpected emergencies. Now, a routine stirring of the oxygen tanks caused an explosion because of a faulty wire. So the crew of three needed to relocate into the lunar module, which was only built for two people with one and a half days worth of oxygen. Because, you know, it lands on the moon, you come straight back to the uh, to the spacecraft itself. But they had to power down the module just to survive. So they needed to use that power for re-entry into the US atmosphere. And they're struggling with temperature because, you know, they had to switch everything off to preserve oxygen. Uh, and the had to try and find other ways of trying to keep warm with that. And here's where the empathy in UX, UX kind of comes into play. So, like, one of the original astronauts who, I guess, couldn't make the mission um, was on hand at NASA. And what he did is he, he placed himself within the simulator and he wanted to experience the same issues the astronauts were actually experiencing in space. So, you know, they were in peril, they were cold, there was no sleep. And you decided to communicate through microphone and speakers to try and simulate that sort of real-world environment. That's then cool. you come to like you come to like defining the problem from there. So they moved from a we need to mentality and redefined the problem to the astronauts need to. So they were looking to solve for the astronauts in space, not the astronaut in the simulator. And this is a particular example, the lunar module carbon dioxide was building up quite rapidly. And so that was placing their lives in danger. Now, they had it to change the circular CO2 scrubbers. So these are things that kind of absorb carbon dioxide in the lunar modules, but they only had square ones from the command module. So the scientists and engineers came together to generate ideas, basically to ideate. And that's why a uh, multidisciplinary team is so important in UX because everyone brings their own perspective and expertise to the problem statement. So looking at alternative ways to solve a problem. And this is why it's important to list your constraints in these workshops because the team had to improvise with materials that were actually within the space module. So they, you know, they built prototypes basically using materials like a flight manual cover. You know, they use socks, plastic bags, bungee cords, you know whatever they could get their hands on in space. And the internal tests were done, um, but the team were very time limited. They had, had they waited for more definitive results, then the astronauts wouldn't have made it out alive. And I guess what I'm trying to get to is like, this is why we test with real users very early on in the process. You know, obviously it costs a coffee, you know, coffee isn't a life and death scenario itself. <laughs> you know we test with real users early on so we can solve the problems quickly and iterate as we need to
0: yeah that's awesome it's a really interesting and fascinating approach to this is there anywhere that we could read up further on
1: this yeah there's tons of stuff on google just um google design thinking uh apollo 13 there's tons of stuff um yeah i just gave you like a brief a sort of intro into it like the the contraption that they had to make is called the mailbox or was a post box one of those okay. two but um yeah you'll see a picture of it how they tried to plug the holes um of those carbon dioxide scrubbers uh which kept them alive and basically using things like socks and plastic bags basically just so they could survive and re-enter the earth's atmosphere
0: cool definitely um check that out further. it sounds so interesting Could you tell us a bit about the company you work at?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm currently working for my old uni that I was a student at. So I've only been there for a month, so I'm kind of still defining the role. But I find it's quite an interesting time to join. So what they want to do is they want to be a bit more product-focused. So they recently moved to an Agile methodology, but it's only very small steps. Like, it's weird. They don't want to call it Agile. And they don't want to change too quickly for risk of alienating staff who have been there for 10, 15 plus years. But what's quite interesting is they're actually open to a more design-led methodology. So currently it's kind of – it's weird. It's heavily influenced by the academic hierarchy, but I'm coming in to try and balance out the university goals with the student goals. And it's interesting and challenging balancing this because – you know you've got academic led platforms but student facing experiences there's lots of considerations from both sides that influence what the experience will be and my backgrounds mostly customer facing experiences but when you're designing for both customers and staff it's more it's a more delicate balancing act and there may be quite a bit more compromise as well mm-hmm. I guess the challenge is that, you know, if we can demonstrate that we're what we're trying to do works, and I guess we'll have more buying and eagerness to shift our way of thinking. And that's what I'm currently trying to do at that company.
0: Love it when you hear more of like places moving to the agile world. I mean, yeah. there's... Seem- this makes sense, you know, in regards to not overwhelming team members uh, initially. So like you said, having that plan in place, so they'll get more of that trust and, and buy-in from working towards the Agile environment.
1: Yeah, and we, you know, I think the way we do this as well, like we start with small projects so they can actually, we can actually demonstrate like a pro, an end-to-end project um, so they can see how successful it is, how easy it is to iterate how quick it is to get out into the open space and you know we want to shift that way of thinking we want to make sure that they're comfortable enough to change their sort of thinking with that um yeah as you say it's very it's a very delicate balancing in that because quite a lot of the staff and you know quite of the, uh, you know they've been there for more than 15 years and you know people yeah. are so ingrained in a culture it's very difficult to shift that way of thinking so we're taking it slowly.
0: I look forward to hearing more about this in the future how you manage to accomplish that so I'll be glad <laughs> to hear that. <laughs> we'll,
1: see. we'll see how it goes.
0: Yeah how do projects usually come in for you so in what sort of format?
1: Uh, well I guess at the places I've worked at it's usually starting with like a one pager so you know this one page of briefly outlines what the business goals are. You know, the customer goals are referenced, but that's kind of our job to, de- to define, basically. Uh, we talk about what metric we want to move. So do we want to increase conversion, you know, through registration, sales, you know, adoption, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also look at the reasons for the work. So thinking about the work that we did at Costa during the pandemic, you know, we wanted to reward our loyalty customers because they're so loyal to us and keeping us open. But... We also worked on initiatives where we wanted to try more contactless solutions to try and mitigate risk of spread of COVID as well. Um, And then we look at what impact it will have on business goals. So sales, retention, revenue, stuff like that. Nice. From there, it's up to us how we want to tackle the challenge and what our process is. And at Costa, it was usually around design sprints, basically, unless it was more research-led pieces. But I I think we mentioned it before, like we look to get the right people in the room so we can workshop together. Um, You know, we all bring our own bit of knowledge and perspective to the actual problem at hand. And before I do that, I send out a brief so others can do their own research. Mm -hmm. So I look at more divergent ways of working this sort of space right there. Now, in the days when, you know, we're allowed to be in the same room together, it would have been more of a convergent way of working so you know we'd be working together to solve problems uh, you know researching together developing our hypotheses together our assumptions key user journeys together sketching together but with the pandemic we've had to kind of like adopt a more flexible hybrid way of workshopping so now we still incorporate our convergent ways but we'd have to use more of parallel design to sketch separately and then we'd come back to more convergent ways again by working uh, together and discussing the solutions and the way forward together. Um, from there, we'd think about what we'd want to capture and how we'd structure the tasks in question. So I would then utilize our UI kit and build the prototypes in sort of an efficient manner because we've got everything there in place. Um, and then that choosing the right prototyping tool depending on the level of fidelity that the prototype actually needs to be. Um, what I usually do then is I run quickly uh, with the team what the prototypes are, what we look at a capture and the user journeys. And if we're good to go, I'll go ahead and test it. And yeah. Yeah, thinking back at Costa, we had access to great facilities and great platforms as well. So when the, the pandemic hit, you know, we relied solely on remote user, test, uh, remote user testing, basically, through usertesting.com. But beforehand, we did lots of guerrilla testing in store. Uh, we also had great testing partners who would recruit for us, and we'd do more controlled testing in our lab. Or in the case of the self-order screen that I worked on as well, um, we ran in-store testing at our iTab facility where we were able to simulate peak hour commuting to test our products. Um I'd then present the findings to the wider team and hierarchy. And if it was a success, then great, we'd go ahead and build the user journeys. I would take the wider team through it, especially the dev team, and annotating where I need to um, and giving them the right level of information to build the experience. And obviously, if it didn't test well, we'd pivot and we'd go through the loop again. But um, I'm obviously omitting some detail here as well. So, like, you know, we'd be liaising with the insights team to get more info that we need from our customer. Uh, analytics to explain what we want to capture. We also liaise with content teams to ensure that it was structured correctly and, you know, various other teams uh, and team members to help us on that journey as well. Yeah, that's brilliant.
0: A proper in-depth process. I love the lean and agile approach, and I find when tackling a project initially, as you mentioned, having metrics and hypotheses in place really um, does help capture what success looks like and the problem you're trying to solve. I'm a huge fan of starting with, you know, business and customer goals. As you've mentioned, the focus on metrics, particularly the North Star metric, then breaking it, breaking the the key results down from that. Yeah, and you also talked about testing, pivot or persevere, depending on the results, which is fantastic. And we should always test often, you know, utilizing A, B as much as possible. This is really encouraging. And I hope by the end of the show, if listeners can take anything away from it, this would be one of them, as Costa said.
1: Yeah, and I I think as well, like you're working for a company, results are what they're looking at. They're looking to gain more revenue because that's what keeps them afloat. So you need to make sure you've got the right process in place. You need to make sure you've got the right tools in place so you can capture that key data as well, because if it's not there, then it's not going to work basically. And I've seen seen it at companies where we've had to persevere quickly to try and get stuff done, but not plan efficiently um, as well. And we've seen projects just fall by the wayside and fail because the due diligence wasn't done correctly. Absolutely. Yeah,
0: I echo that. Can you tell us one thing you're currently working on right now?
1: Yeah, so in my current role, I'm kind of more consulting and strategic. So I'm looking at projects in a more holistic view, just not, um, you know, for our students and academics um, using the platform. But I'm also helping structure the process in how we do the work and who we involve internally Mm -hmm. and externally, basically. So the team I'm currently working with, is a small thing that I'm doing at the moment. They're looking at like a self-help piece for students. Now, they came to me and they weren't sure if they needed to iterate what they currently have in place or completely redo everything. So my role was to ensure that they take the correct steps that will inform that sort of decision, basically. So, you know, what the overall problem statement and goal is, what sort of research they need to undertake and with who, what questions do they ask? How do they set up the scenarios? And given an insight into how I structure my questions and how I conduct these sort of research pieces. But also how I present the findings to the people that handle the money and the decision makers and how I use the data I've gathered to just explain our design decisions. So I'm kind of hands off for the moment, but when required, I'll also conduct the work as well when needed.
0: That's really interesting. And how are you finding the strategic role compared to where you were in Costa?
1: Well, I've been lucky enough. So when I was contracting many years ago, um, I did quite a bit of that upfront strategic work. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's an adjustment it, because like, I had my boss telling me the other day that I shouldn't have to get involved in um, that sort of like hands-on work because... They brought me in for a specific reason, and so I've, I'm I'm trying to like ease my way out of yeah. the doing. <laughs> um it, it's 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 an adjustment, but uh, you know I'll get there in the end. But yeah, it's it is different. It is a lot different to what I was used to at Costa. Definitely. Yeah. Do you enjoy it more? Um, it's kind of hard to say because because it's so new. Because I'm yeah. so new into the world, I haven't seen what the end work looks like at the end at, at the moment so
0: that makes sense you know,
1: yeah it's 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 early stage project so I'm just trying to like make sure that I guide them in the right place um, don't get me wrong I will need to do some of that work with them as well because we just don't have the personnel the experience uh, at the university at the moment uh, to do that work but like you know it's more of an education piece and making sure that you know, Everything's in place before we actually begin the work itself.
0: Cool. Look forward to hearing a bit more in the in the near future once you settled in a bit more in, into the role. How would you define the UX industry at present?
1: Oh god, ah, uh, god, it's an interesting time to be a designer, isn't it? Like, where do I start? <laughs> um, I think it's three things, right? So, firstly, it's very exciting. Now, I won't go into like a lot of detail. Just, you know you know emerging right. tech allows designers to like think holistically about you know a customer and the brand you know there's the rise of like storytelling how you present and get buy-in and i guess there's an emergence of more specialized roles as well you also think about the more diverse product teams and we had a very diverse product team lot well, of product teams and cluster as well and i guess that allows designers to think more cultural aspects of design, which is fantastic. But I also think, as well, like the calibre of entry level candidates coming out of university and courses at the moment is absolutely amazing. Mm. I was I was judging a UX competition about a month ago, and wow. the work the work presented was phenomenal. <laughs> I was just looking at and just going, "Oh my god!" Like these guys are absolutely fantastic. These are things that, like you know all UX designers should be doing. These guys are just like fresh out. Like it was so so thoughtful, the end-to-end experiences where everything was so meticulously considered. And, you know, I'm, I'm like, thinking back and when I did my degree, and don't get me wrong, like, it was a very long time ago, but like we had the one subject in, of UX in my degree and that was essentially, this is Jacob Nielsen. This is right. what Jacob Nielsen would do. Do what they, Jacob Nielsen does. And like... You know like when we, we came across it, like who the hell is jake nielsen like we didn't know who this person was but like you look at the syllabus now it does really deep into like custom experience design thinking research methodologies psychology and i think that because the caliber of entry-level candidates is so good right now i think it provides better experiences across the board as well um I also think, like, it's very complex, like, thinking around data and privacy, you know, we saw the introduction of GDPR and how we handle and use data. And don't get me wrong, great step forward towards transparency, but that's just only the beginning. Like, yeah. you know, there's a rise in ethical design moving away from why we collect your data to should we be asking for it in the first place? And, you know, stuff like that impacts trust, especially in this day and age, And you know, as an example, like you see this with social media integrating with third-party solutions, and I've seen this on a bunch of values. I worked at a startup um, dating app, and I've seen this many times. Like users are refusing to use social sign-on. It's just an example to register for a service because of how, you know, da- their data is collected, how it's used, and especially how it's shared and who it's shared with. Like just look at the Cambridge Analytica shit show you know, people are still very wary and rightly so. But I think it's the move towards should we be asking for it in the first place is a positive step. And, you know, we need to be designing more transparently, you know, be clear about intentions, but be honest in actions. Um, and I think finally, I think it's quite scary, but, you know, we're working on the problem. You, you look at misinformation and disinformation impacting everyone to drive political motivations like the you the role of ux has like evolved but there's still this misconception of like what it really is people tend to think of ux as you know getting from point a to point b like my friends think i just put a bunch of boxes on paper and color <laughs> the in basically yeah. um it's a lot more than that like, I, to paraphrase my ex of ux mark like it's a User user experience is about providing the right information, the right content, in the right context for users to make more informed decisions. You know, we can design tools that determine the reliability of content and sources. So is this content from a reputable source? Is it credible? What's the proof that it is? You know, how do we fact check it? And I think that's really prevalent in society today. And that I think designers have a role to help debunk. And stop the spread of misinformation and disinformation. That's my take <laughs> on UX. That's brilliant. A very defined
0: three things. How the, the UX industry is going at present. And the complex data and privacy. The the trust etc. I also believe. I don't know what you think as well. In terms of like accessibility. There's there's not much going around. Or like a huge focus around that. And I feel like there are big wins around that. And uh, I know... Yeah. Yeah, what'd you think?
1: I definitely agree. Like I remember, you know, in retail industry, like, you know, the accessibility is kind of like an afterthought. Mm. Really, like at university level, you you're all about inclusion. Um, and so like it's a lot more structured and you know accessibility is right at the forefront because you got to cater for all sorts of students that want to come to the university, you know, the visually impaired, the hearing impaired, Um, so I think there's a greater, like greater influence of accessibility at the higher ed sort of, um, industry stuff that I haven't experienced. Like I've, I've worked in retail, worked in advertising, healthcare, uh, a whole bunch of things, you know, you, you design first and then you may think about, is this going to be double A or triple (laughs) A, um. Accessibility, it's it's an afterthought, but like what I'm finding here, and it's fantastic, like, you know, the first thing, first is like, we're designing for inclusion of everybody. How do we do it? And so it's proper planning in place.
0: Yeah, exactly that. You talked about your processes in um, UX design before, how do you measure success and validate your design decisions?
1: Uh, so, I think it begins with aligning with the wider team on what we want to test and ensuring we have buy in, basically. So, okay. the, our validation comes in the form of not just behavioral insights, but like we also look at some subjective feedback. And, you know, you would have heard this around the cost office or wherever, like you test more, you test often. Hmm. And I reference behavioral insights because sometimes we see our participants do one thing. But say something completely different that contradicts what they've just done. Like you see in all matters of um, user testing. But you also have to balance out the behavioral insights, the objectivity, with some subjective feedback. Because what good is a product if your customer is going to say they're not going to use it? So I think that's critical to how we deploy and measure our products and ensuring our MVP is exactly just that, you know, the most minimal viable product out there so we can learn quickly mm-hmm. now ensuring that leaks are in place so we capture the right data using tools like adobe target to track to ab test stuff like that you know we also relied in you know, Costa days we also relied on quite heavily on the data that the crm spat out at us as well and i know just before i left you know we looked at Hotjar and ux can to track these journeys and how our users interacted with our platforms you know if it's a product like the in-store touchscreen that I worked on at Costa, we also look at field testing to ensure we correctly iterate our products because, you know, some things you just won't pick up even in a controlled testing environment. Like in the case of the self-order screen itself, we couldn't replicate some of the external elements like the glare on the screen or where the lights were positioned in the shop, um, the height or the angle of the screen itself. So, you know, field testing and that sort of Uh, for that product was vital to iterate that product and validate our design decisions
0: yeah that's very insightful it's so true on behavior insights as you mentioned and to be mindful of being biased as well in in the way we how we structure the, the type of testing we set out is also important right yeah at costa we are setting ourselves up to experiment and like working on a plan at the moment for how we can give everyone the voice to share their ideas as well as the squad to prioritize what to test and learn and how to do that continuously so i'll let you know how we get on from that perspective
1: Yeah, please i mean like back in the day as well like it wasn't uncommon that a developer would be in those testing sessions or a product owner would be on those session sessions or because you know in the testing environment we had a, a live feed go out to our development team so they could watch as well And i think that's vitally important that people who work on the project and even some of the decision makers on the project itself get access to those tests because it just shows like, you know, it shows what your product could be. It shows the flaws in your product and, uh, you know, getting buy-in from everybody, uh, it's vital to that testing process. Exactly that,
0: yeah. What is the most challenging part of your role?
1: uh well in my current role i think it's like aligning the wider product teams to like this new way of agile working Mm -hmm. and demonstrating that design methodologies can move them away from like a reactive mind frame to a more strategic direction so rather than spend time you know fixing problems it's more about getting out ahead ensuring that we build the right product in the first place so i'm working with teams to see where i can add value so some of these teams are more open and receptive to the change however you know it's a hierarchy that they report into and they're more ingrained in the old ways of working and they still like to dictate what the project should be so i guess with my strategic direction i'm looking to work with the product teams to develop their roadmaps to be a bit more customer centric but still align with the business goals now, recently I met with someone um, who did her master's research in behavioral change amongst staff and moving towards design methodologies. Who's going to take me through her research? But I think that's the beauty about the wider design community as well. Like I mentioned earlier, people think design is just a bunch of shapes and colors yeah. on a piece of paper. But to be honest, man, it's it's so much more than that. It draws upon psychology, statistics, graphic design, computer science, so many other fields. There's a whole range of expertise in different design fields that I can actually draw upon to help me overcome some of these challenges in my role. I think design itself, it's its a lot more vast with a lot more expertise than people actually realize, even designers realize mm-hmm. itself. And there's a whole network just waiting to be untapped
0: this is great yeah just going back to your first point i can imagine how that can be quite challenging in terms of getting your hierarchy buying and we all have been through that at some point i think it's also getting that trust from stakeholders to to have that mind frame of things we we talked about like you know agile and fail fast and learn mentality but like you said yeah just taking one step at a time but yeah let us know how you get on as this would be great to see how your um, progress is it will do cool where do you go for UX design inspiration
1: oh, look, I, I, I try to get away from my desk to be honest I go outside like yeah. I try not to only focus on digital experiences because I think of UX it's it's not just EMF for digital experience and products like apps and websites like the reality is UX is in our everyday life so nice you know, the physical products that we interact with it helps remind me. And I use as a reminder that these products have been designed to solve an actual problem. So, you know, UX and physical products, they're designed to make everybody's life easier. And you look at parking lots and I don't know if they've got them in the UK, but like here in Australia, you go to like a shopping center and you've got like a red or green light on the ceiling to tell you if the parking bay is free or it's occupied. That makes my life a whole lot easier. It's amazing something as simple as that. I think it's absolutely brilliant. You know, take tactile paving, for example, right? You know, those yellow bumps that you see at train stations, the underground for the visually impaired, like the, the inventor began designing the paving because he had a friend who was beginning to develop vision impairment. Mm-hmm. So together they came up with like these raised dots and the purpose of the raised dots are to inform the, uh, the visually impaired of danger ahead or the long guides which are used to as a directional tool basically. And just things like that, I think is a constant reminder that you don't you design experiences digitally or otherwise, they're intended to make things just that little bit easier. And I think that's where I draw my inspiration from. It allows me to approach a problem from another perspective.
0: Brilliant. I just love, you know, what you've said in regards to UX is um, in everyday life. That makes perfect sense. It really did remind me of the book Design of Everyday Things by Don yes. Norman. Basically talks about, you know, products and everyday things that gives uh, users the, the affordance of what actions are possible and so on. I mean, for listeners who haven't read the book, go read it because it's... Uh, go ahead so inspirational and a lot of what you've just said reminded me of of that and it's great that you've mentioned it as well moving on what are your favorite apps for ux at the moment
1: can i say the costa coffee app of course you
0: can. You get bonus
1: points for that <laughs> bonus points because i worked on an app that quite, no um i think from a tech standpoint and purely a tech standpoint because i think privacy is an issue which i referenced earlier I wouldn't say app, but more ecosystem. I'm thinking more of like the Google ecosystem and mm. the Internet of Things products that interact with it. Like, I'm a, an extremely lazy person. Like, I I have home automation everywhere in my house. Like, I don't want to stand up to turn off a light. I just want to tell Google to turn it off, basically, um, through a voice command or just using an app. I'm, I'm super lazy. Super lazy. <laughs> but, like, <laughs> I find lazy. it yeah, yeah like, like I find it quite fascinating that you know, the integration of all these different devices from different brands into a complete ecosystem it it's fascinating and again it goes on to like design thinking it it serves a purpose just to make things a little bit easier on how we like, interact with everyday life I, I, stuff like that I love uh, I love that sort of like nerdy stuff um, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm sure most people can relate to that. So it's, it's really good that you've mentioned it. Yeah, i
1: also think, you know, obviously Google have their own suite of products, but, like, the fact that my lights are from Hue, my mm. HiFi system is a different system. Like, I've got all these different branded devices, but they all work through one ecosystem. And I think that's quite fascinating, thinking about, like, you know, the different APIs that you would have to use to build all that stuff. Yeah. Um, the different legal sort of challenges that you'd have to go through and sift through stuff like that. The amount of work that's needed to do something like this is quite fascinating to me.
0: Yeah, it'd be interesting to see what the future looks like. What does it mean to be a good UX designer?
1: Uh, look, I think I think anyone can be a good UX designer. You know, you you practice your craft and you work hard to improve. Mm. You take a brief and you design like a seamless user journey that customers want. You know. You, can work well in a team, articulate design decisions to stakeholders, validate your designs. Like there are countless good UX designers out there, but I think there's a very subtle difference between what makes a good designer and what makes a great designer. I'm going to paraphrase Dita Rams, but a good, UX, good designer will design something that is intelligible and memorable, but a great designer will design something that's memorable and meaningful. Like a good designer, you know, they'll listen to customers and they'll give them what they want. But Mm I think a great designer will listen to customers and give them what they need to solve a problem. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm going to name drop again, like Henry Ford, although it is actually debatable if he actually said this, but he allegedly said, "You know, if I asked people what they wanted, they would have said faster horses. And you kind of, you think on that problem statement there, like the problem statement is, how do I make a horse faster? The problem statement is, how do I get from A to B quicker? You know, a faster yeah. horse isn't necessarily the right solution. And a great, I think a great designer understands this. They know that the average person can't always, like, articulate what the right solution is, you know. They know what people want and what people need aren't necessarily the same thing. And, you know, they're able to work through the clutter, and define what the actual problem is. And I guess, you know, they'll look at a product holistically and understand the overall product vision. And that's why they aren't so fast to jump into Figma or Sketch or XD or whatever their choice of design tool is. I think, I believe like great designers think more and design less.
0: Love it. Good examples there, especially, you know, uh, articulate the meaning of the difference between, you know, what it takes to be a good and a great UXer. It's also a good reminder for myself. What are your favorite tools at the moment?
1: Um, well, I rely heavily on Azure for prototyping because okay. um, it's it has so much functionality. Um, you know, if I need to do just simple click-throughs, I'll use something like InVision. But if I need to use a bit more functionality, a bit more fidelity, I'll go to Axure. I think Miro is an amazing tool, especially during the pandemic when we didn't see each other for like 15 months. Um, You know, we had to change the way we did workshops. And not only did that, you know, not only did we use Miro as a workshop and whiteboarding tool, but, you know, there's a lot of experimentation in those early days of the pandemic as to what the right approach was, you know. It was our full-time project board where, you know, our team members could get all the information they needed to do their jobs, but it also outlined our full end-to-end process so everyone could see how we went from research to ideation to validation, basically. Yeah. But I think for tools, just a a simple pencil and paper, I mean, to quickly jot down ideas, share with the wider team, like. I think that some designers are so focused on getting into sketch and Figma early, they're missing that simple, you know, effective step. Like, you know, quickly sketch your ideas on paper so you can plan effectively. I think, yeah, just pen and paper or a whiteboard and pen, just like that's, that's the tool you want and you need
0: great tools that you've mentioned there I've dabbled in Azure in the past and can see how powerful that tool is and you're right about you know simple pen and paper I mean I often and I'm sure most designers do as well just doodle and scribble notes down and I've actually recently got myself an iPad uh, with a pencil from lots of recommendations including yourself
1: Um, yeah (laughs)
0: Yeah, and now I can't imagine not having one. Now, uh, for me, sketching ideas digitally just uh, makes it so much easier. Uh, even when sharing in an ideation workshop, just a simple, you know, like export straight to Miro that kind of stuff. It just makes my life so much easier.
1: Well, I always found it as well. Like when I had to do storyboards to take uh, stakeholders through, mm. like my proposed solutions, basically. Like I would have a you know like an ipad or at the time um, a surface and i would sketch the actual storyboards they so i could tell the story as to why my design decisions were these decisions basically so yeah i think you know it's an effective tool to have because it just it's so easy just to quickly jot something down and make a point yeah exactly that
0: so moving on to the next one what is the one key UX piece of advice you would give? I'm interested in this one. Ah,
1: uh, um, I think as a UX designer, you're going to come across people with very strong opinions regarding your design decisions. Like, I, so I, I, one of your earlier podcasts mentioned this, like, you know, clients, stakeholders, team members. It's a constant battle trying to justify your design decisions constant everyone's <laughs> quoting them um but what what you have to remember is that they're not personal attacks you know mm-hmm. some of that feedback is business related so you know listen to your team iterate uh, accordingly you know sometimes the feedback is is subjective like you know the client doesn't like the million they prefer maroon like you know these things happen that happens in the workplace to me like Even at Costa, we've had to deal with, like, strong-minded personalities objecting our design decisions. Like, you say, all all well, yeah. Like, you know, our designs are validated based on balancing behavioural insights so we can objectively articulate those findings and the right forms of subjective feedback so we can gauge whether a customer will or will not use our product and why. You know, you can't win every battle with this. And part of my job is trying to, to, you know, uncover the underlying reasons, the why, basically.
0: Yeah. You know, awesome.
1: Why can't a customer complete a task? Why can't they convert? Why can't they see that call to action? You know, I take this sort of same approach with stakeholders in the workplace, you know. You're handling lots of different personalities and you need to tease out those finer details. Like it's a very delicate balancing act, you know. Demonstrating that you can uncover those underlying reasons, understanding the why of their feedback, being empathetic. You know, you get their reasons where that feedback is coming from. And, you know, I guess that better prepares you and gives you a more solid foundation to bring those personalities on side because, you know, you understand because it's empathy. You know, Mm -hmm. empathy isn't just reserved for your customers. You know, use it with your with your stakeholders, use it with your work colleagues and you'll get further. This is
0: really good advice. I can relate to some of the experiences. I think it just links to um, stakeholder management as well. It's a good skill to possess. Again, it reminds me of the five whys when solving problem or when you look at uh, business objectives. Also having the data and research, you know, beforehand will help back up much more uh, in explaining, you know, to, to stakeholders about solutions and the experiences users are, are facing in terms of pain points or friction, right? Um, yeah,
1: and just going know. back earlier, like trying to get those people on board and trying to get by and trying to validate and making sure, you know, some of those people, stakeholders, teammates see the user testing uh in situ, right? But mm-hmm. if they can't make it, video is such a great tool to show um to make your point basically. So, you know, we in, in our sort of like when we presented data, we presented our design decisions to the wider team, we always use video to show if a customer's having trouble with performing a task or an action. Because it just highlights they they actually get a visual and an audible sort of frustration from the customer and i find that you know use video where you can to try and get those personalities on board as well
0: amazing i mean i hope the listeners are taking notes of these and i also think it's crucial you know to the steps of becoming a great ux as you mentioned earlier how can we find your work and connect with you
1: um Oh, catch catch me on LinkedIn or, you know, I've got other social media, so Facebook, Instagram, I'm rarely on Twitter these days. Um, I've also got a website, so with my work on it, so costalogic.com. Uh, I, I still need to, I've been really slack, I shouldn't be, but, like, I still need to update it with my my last, my cost of work from last year and the app stuff. Um, or catch me at the local bus stop, you know, stop and have a natter <laughs> with me
0: nice fantastic yeah be sure to check out costa's work and get in touch if you've got any other questions or want to know a bit more yeah thank you very much costa for an awesome session it's great to to see your smashing out there and you're an inspiration for sure i'd like to personally thank you as all well with, the, with the help whilst at costa coffee um a brilliant designer and a great guy in general keep in touch oh, no, no, you're,
1: you're flattering <laughs> me don't mention it's good say, yeah. say hi to everyone for me <laughs> but yeah exactly that
0: let's see how good of a tour guide you are when i come and visit you in australia
1: yeah come on over mate i'll, I'll show you around the snakes and uh, <laughs> the, the,
0: the creeper crawlers etc
1: anything that can kill you is here
0: <laughs> yeah <laughs> thanks costa
1: no worries man take it easy yeah
0: see you later goodbye Thanks to Costa for an inspiring session today, also for sharing his experience and knowledge. Feel free to reach out to him if you need any further information on what we've discussed today or just have a chat. If you enjoyed the show, I would really appreciate if you could leave a review on all platforms so we can give this show more visibility to inspire more designers. Uh, Lastly, I'd love to connect with you, so feel free and reach out if you have any questions. Until next month, let's get inspired and stay curious, folks.